I'm Victor Davis Hansen, and I'm a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in Classics and Military History. But for the last 17 years, I've been the Wayne and Martha Buskey Fellow at Hillsdale College. And I'm here to talk about citizenship, especially the advantages, the historical opportunities that citizenship has given Western societies in general, the United States in particular, but unfortunately, the endangered status of citizenship and the citizen himself. We can see the symptoms throughout the year 2020 and 2021. Look at the southern border. We're expected in a fiscal year of 2021 to have two million people cross the border illegally and with exemption. And where at a time when the American citizen is being asked to be vaccinated, we have no expectation that any of the people who are entering the United States illegally will have to be vaccinated. If you, the listener, American citizen or a legal resident, were to come across the U.S. border without a passport or to arrive at a U.S. airport without a passport, you would be in big trouble. And yet people who are not citizens are not treated equitably. They're actually treated better, if we can use that term, for entering the country whenever you wish without legal documentation. Just a sign that whatever citizenship is, it doesn't seem to amount to much anymore. And I'd like to suggest to you that citizenship itself is not the normal course of events, either in today's world, in which half of the roughly 180 countries in the world are not democratic or they're not consensual. That means the citizens do not determine their own laws, how they're going to be enforced, their economy, their social structure, their political system. It, they are either serfs or subjects or in some ways a modern equivalent of a slave, but they're not empowered citizens. It's a very rare concept. Only half of today's 7 billion people plus in the, on the planet, I think we could characterize as true citizens. Where did it come from? Where did this idea come from that a person could vote, make their own laws, serve on a jury to adjudicate people under the law, whether they were guilty or innocent, pick their own types of punishment, determine the course of when they would go to war, how they would go to war, how they would finance it, who should uh, pay taxes, who should not, who should be a citizen, who should not. Where did this very strange concept begin? I wish I could tell you that it was simultaneous with the discovery of civilization, the emergence of palatial cultures in the ancient Near East or Egypt. But when we look at Mesopotamia, for example, when we start to see monumental architecture, static population, and agricultural bounties around six to 7,000 BC, there's no concept of citizen. The people that are mentioned in cuneiform tablets are subjects, or maybe we could call them serfs. All laws come from on high, and the king, the monarch, the theocrat dictates. It's not that these civilizations did not leave impressive monuments, to their power and their ability to organize labor. Think of it for a minute. The walls of Jericho, four to 5,000 BC. The Valley of the Kings in Egypt, 1600 BC. The impressive Lion's Gate at Mycenae, 1400 BC. 
or the palace at Knossos in Crete, 1600 BC. But early civilizations did not discover the concept, whether it's in the West, Mesopotamia, ancient Greece, Europe, China, or India, they did not discover, discover the idea that individual people could determine the course of their own futures. They had destiny in their own hands. So where do, how did it appear? How did citizenship appear? Well, with the collapse of palatial culture, what we call the Mycenaean civilization around 1200 BC, we had a dark age, a depopulated dark age in Greece, where perhaps 80% of the population uh, vanished because they were not attuned to living on their own in scattered nomadic tribes without the central control of the palaces at Mycenae or Thebes or Gla or Pylos. But out of that dark age, civilization did reemerge around 800. And when it reemerged, it reemerged under very different auspices. Some 1,500 city-states, or what the Greeks called a polis, started to pop up in the inland valleys of Greece. We know the names today of the major ones, Sparta, Corinth, Athens, Thebes. But when these city-states started to appear, it was quite striking uh, that they began to have constitutions or written laws. Indeed, when writing reappeared in Greece around 750, it was not connected with the government. They were not theocratic edicts. They were not government edicts. They were not the Hammurabi law code from a king. They were not the great achievements of a theocrat. They were literature, Homer's Odyssey, that was composed orally but then written down later. It was Homer's Iliad, Hesiod's Works and Days. True literature that described the human experience but were separate and apart from government. Probably the greatest catalyst for citizenship was the protection of property. We take property for granted today, but the idea that you can own your own 10-acre farm, you can plant olives on it or vines, and you protect that investment of your time and capital and labor, and you, most importantly, can hand that off to your son or daughter through inheritance. That was a catalyst to codify and ensure that you, as a citizen, a new idea had that right. So the word polis is the root of all of our modern terms for citizenship in the sense of political, politics, what policies do inside each other. We're gonna see in a little bit that when we transmogrify this to Rome, another word, not a Greek word, but a Latin, kiwis, civilization, civilized, kiwis is the root for citizen. So we're talking about a concept that starts in the 8th century BC in Greece, and then it goes to uh, Rome under Republican auspices. In the next 200 years, there was a gradual liberalization of the concept of citizenship. It started out as small oligarchies within the resident population. Maybe 30 40% of people could vote, males only, people who had property, and uh, there were slaves that could not vote, there were women, not that there was, citizenship was not perfect at its inception. So over the next 200 years, more and more people participated in citizenship that didn't have money. They were landless. And it reached its apex in the 5th century at Athens with the creation of true democracy. That is, everybody who was a free citizen, born to two parents, later one parent, voted in the assembly, 
they served on juries, they paid taxes, and they determined how money was spent. And about half of the city-states that were consensual were democratic, and the other part were consensual, but they were oligarchic. Out of that matrix, a lot of paradoxes and dilemmas arose, and they still challenge us today when we deal with citizenship. The first one was, uh, should we all be equal in a polis or city-state, or should we all be free? Now, in America, we think equality is the same thing as freedom, but unfortunately, we're not born equally. I wish we were, but all of us have different health statuses. We have different energy levels. We have different talents. We have good luck, bad luck. Some of us die at 40. Some of us live to be 90. And that means that if you were farming in the ancient agrarian pre-industrial world, your parcel may get big and your neighbors may get small or non-existent. So the great philosophers of the Greek world, Plato, Aristotle, they thought, well, how can we create equality in perpetuity because the middle class is the essential element of citizenship? And they discovered quite quickly you need a level of government coercion to force people who are more industrious or luckier or more talented not to be so industrious or talented, and you have to lift up the others. And in that process, you're curbing this, what would become a Latin word, liberty. And I think that's very important because in our own age, we have re-mined an old word, uh, equity. We don't talk about equality of opportunity anymore because that does not guarantee an equality result. So today, our old fight over liberty and equality is now a demand for equity. Equity means everybody should be equal on the back end, and the government then should deprive people of freedom and liberty so that all, all people can be equal. I think it was Tocqueville famously said, in a constitutional government, most people would rather be equal and poorer than all better off, but to see some a lot better off. That's innate to human nature, what Hesiod called jealousy and envy. Another dilemma of this new concept of citizenship was it was evolutionary. And so as Plato very sarcastically said, who was a critic of democracy, well, at some point, even the dogs and the donkeys will want, will want to be free and they'll want to be able to vote. And Aristotle chipped in later and said, once a man votes equally with another man, then he feels that it's in his entitlement to be equal in all other aspects. And so citizenship says to us, well, if we're all gonna vote, then why do we make less money than the other person? Or why does that person have a bigger house? And you can see that dilemma today, that equal voting permeates the society and it creates this idea that just as we vote equally, we should have the same types of cars, we have the same types of jobs, we should have the same level of pay. The Greeks discovered that when you protect private property and you don't direct the economy and you will unleash individual talent of the citizen, they make a lot of money and the society gets affluent and it's no longer day-to-day -day survival. And with affluence comes leisure, with leisure comes Excess, and with excess comes what the Greeks thought was a decadence. That means people didn't just wear leather clothing or cotton clothing, they would want purple clothing. And they just didn't want to eat lamb as a delicacy, but they might want to have quail eggs. And so there, there was this constant worry that the agrarian, hardworking citizen would be so successful 
and so affluent and so leisure, they would forget what was important in the world. And you can see that dilemma in Western civilization uh, today as well. This system then was changed and modified by the Romans. As the Greek world was conquered by Rome, they picked and chose things they liked about citizenship and discarded things they didn't. And ironically, what was most important to the Romans were constitutions in the more conservative city-states, Sparta and Crete. And these systems were based on a distrust of power accumulating in too few hands and a distrust of what the average citizen could do anytime, anywhere, to anyone if uh, there were no constitutional guardrails. And so Athenian democracy that executed Socrates or voted one day to kill the population on Mytilene and the next changed their mind and sent another trireme out to the island to reverse that decision or executed the male members of Melians frightened the Romans. So instead of having one executive council, they had two. Instead of just having an assembly, they had a senate, but not just a regular senate, a senate, senex is a good word for older people, older men who would be sober and judicious and they wouldn't be so impulsive. And then they had tribal councils as what we would might call a lower house, but they had veto power, what the founders of our own country saw and liked through tribunes. And then there were magistrates, executive branches. So the idea there was an executive, a legislative group, and judges all checking and balancing each other reflected this Roman idea that you had to be very careful about turning the reins of government over to the average person because it required a lot of time, a lot of maturity, and a lot of good judgment. And they felt that the Greek city-states that had been radically democratic lost that idea and were very reckless and self-destructed. The Roman Republic then lasted for over 700 years, the empire in the West for another 500 years. It's important at this point to remember the traditional critiques of citizenship. Citizenship never promised that it could change human nature. So slavery was with civilization from the beginning in the Near East. Indeed, there are places in North Africa and Asia and the Middle East where slavery still exists. In the ancient world, it was very hard to eradicate, unlike in the, the modern world, because it was not based on race. And by that I mean there was no idea that particular people deserved to be slaves because they were somehow naturally inferior. Think about that for a minute. If you were an Ethiopian, you could be a slave or you could be a master in Greece and Rome. Some of the emperors in the later empire that were themselves black. Terence, the great uh, comic poet and dramatist, comedian, was uh, probably North African or more. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. If you're not invested in a pseudoscience of racial inferiority and you happen to be a slave, then you just say, well, I never said you were stupider than I am the master. I just said you were more unlucky. Could happen to me tomorrow. I could be in the wrong city at the wrong place and be enslaved. And so, or I could lose money and they could put me into enslavement. And so it was an insidious institution that was very hard to eradicate. When people were in blocks, whether it was the Helots in Sparta 
are slaves that were former gladiators, then they would revolt because they felt they had a collective ideology. But mostly slaves were detached in families and there was no investment in the idea that the slave would be uh, a slave because he was somehow inferior. In fact, most Roman families loved to have Greek slaves because they were better educated and more knowledgeable than their master. The second thing is very important to realize is, and this is more difficult and controversial, there was a concept going back to Greece that slavery permitted the individual to have the leisure and time to be an active citizen. That would mean walk 20 miles into Athens and get into the ecclesia or the assembly uh, place out on the Paninx and actually vote and then walk back and serve maybe the next day on a jury, next day go to a comedy of Aristophanes, the next day go to a play to Aeschylus while somebody was making shoes or making pots in your little shop. Whether that's true or not, scholars disagree, but there does seem to be some idea, and this carried into the Confederacy, that constitutional government was time-consuming and it required refinement and thinking, and therefore the more brutal and muscular arts should be devoted to slavery. I want to say another thing about race and citizenship. While this is going on in the southern Mediterranean, this idea of citizenship, and it is a rejection of the monumental civilizations in the, the Near East and in Crete and in Egypt in the sense that they were top down and this is broad and middle class. What's going on in so-called white Northern Europe, places that we now call Germany or France or Belgium or Scandinavia, in the ancient world they were Germania or Gaul or Hispania? And the answer is not much. They were tribal, much like the American West and in the pre-Columbian periods where very few people, maybe one or two per hundred square miles, tribal groups of the Huns, the Goths, the Oscoths, the Vandals, they had no settled cities, no settled agriculture, very primitive, and Mediterranean peoples then equated these white tribes, blue-eyed, blonde hair, with savagery. It's quite ironic when people today allege that citizenship is the equivalent of race. It never has been. And so is this evolutionary process grew, uh, it started to be protected throughout the Mediterranean by Rome. And Rome had a great selling point, even during the imperial times. If they went into North Africa or modern-day Iraq or Germany or Poland, they would tell a conquered people, now you have habeas corpus, or you have a right to know what the charges are against you, and you'll be tried by a Roman magistrate. If you pay taxes to us, you will be told in your local council where the money goes for. If you're a Roman soldier, you have certain rights and responsibilities. And in addition to that, because citizenship and Roman government requires an advanced and materially prosperous citizenry, we will bring water to you on aqueducts, we will take waste out of the city, we will pave your roads with stone, and you'll have a culture that you did not have in tribal times that is both materially advanced, culturally sophisticated, but more importantly, it'll have laws and legal codes that will protect you regardless of your social standing or your income. That was a radical idea and explains why Rome at, by the third century controlled about 70 million people and about 1 million uh, citizens. But remember what we talked about earlier, there were inherent 
contradictions in citizenship. The wealthier Rome became as it had a global economy and the Mediterranean became a highway from Asia to Africa to Europe and created bounty and good trade, cheaper prices, people became more affluent. And the more they became affluent, they became more leisure. And the more different peoples that you brought into the empire, the harder it was to integrate them, assimilate them, intermarry them with a common idea of Romanality. By the fifth century AD, the Romans' idea of citizenship started to break down. The elites no longer felt they had to invest in it. If you were a soldier on the Danube or the Rhine on the borders of Germany, maybe you spoke more German than you did Latin. Maybe you married a German wife. Maybe you didn't assimilate. Maybe when somebody said, you got to go all the way over to North Africa to protect us, you said, I'm not leaving. But there was localism and tribalism reasserting themselves. And the result is that at least in the West, Western Europe, citizenship was lost. It survived in the East and under Byzantium for another thousand years, but only in pockets did it pop up again. Elements of the Magna Carta in Britain, Florentine republics. During the Renaissance and Enlightenment, citizenship started returning to Europe. And you can make the argument by the 19th century, we had constitutional republics again. And today, the great bulwark of citizenship is the economic powerhouse of the United States and North America in general, especially Canada and the United States. A couple of other things to remember uh, about citizenship today, and that is it's being challenged then in the way Rome was and Greece was from two different areas. And I guess if it was okay, I could use the term pre-modern and post-modern, or maybe organic and natural and contrived and elite. And by that I mean there were always forces in the world that are antithetical to citizenship. One of them is that we all like to, as humans, feel more comfortable with people that look like us. So our identity, our superficial appearance, is essential to we are rather than incidental. Citizenship says, no, if you are a citizen of a republic or a democracy, your first loyalty is to other citizens, and they may not look like you. And that's a very rare idea to take citizenship and the idea of a Republican democracy and evolve it to a new level of multiracialism. United States does it today. Brazil tries, India tries, not very effectively. But it was essential that if a person in a multiracial nation and is going to protect citizenship, you cannot become tribal. Countries that are imperial, nations that are imperial, that have different peoples of different races, and they're not constitutional, and they do not have citizenship, what do they do if you're Soviet Union, or the Ottoman Empire, or the Caliphate? You force people that do not look alike to follow you by force and power of arms. There can be no freedom. But in the West, this idea that citizenship would allow people who have no tribal affinities to have one affinity, a loyalty to a constitution, is very rare. And that's something that uh, we struggle with at the organic level. People even today in America want to identify with people who look superficially alike, or they share the same religion, or they share the same language, but it's not English, or it's not a common religion, or it's not uh, the idea that race is unimportant. The second thing that's uh, a challenge from 
I would call the uh, organic side or the pre-modern side is people don't really believe in borders. Uh, what destroyed Rome were marauding or migrating tribes that went across the Danube or, or they went across the Mediterranean or they went across the Rhine and they no longer could stop them. And the Roman idea and the Greek idea is if you have a secure, defined border, then within that area, people will become better known to each other. The language will be emphasized more, the commonality of the language. The customs and traditions will be honored. Everybody will know something about civic education. But the more you expand that idea outside the borders, the more diluted and the weaker it becomes, and the more people that come in that are not citizens will not know anything about your customs. All they will look about, look at is the affluence that citizenship and constitutionality give them. And so they'll want the rights of citizenship or the bounties, but they will know nothing about the responsibilities. So borders were essential to the idea of uh, Western citizenship. And yet today, our border, especially on the South, that 2,000 mile border has become a construct. It's not enforced. We have no idea of who is coming across it. We don't know why they're coming across. If you ask American, why does somebody want to leave Honduras or Mexico to come here? It would be very challenging for them to explain that. And we, the host, have no confidence in our own values to say, you made a decision to come to our country. Fine, we welcome you, but you have to come legally. You have to come in a diverse fashion. You have to come with some skills. You have to speak our language. And we, the host, will then assimilate you. All of that has been jetsoned, I think. And finally, the middle class is very important to citizenship. The middle class in the ancient thinking, and we're looking at the philosophers and the political scientists of Greece and Rome, would say what was unique about the middle class is they do not rely on government like the poor for entitlements, and they lack the envy and jealousy of the rich that the poor express. But unlike the rich, they're not always trying to warp or leverage government for private concessions to enrich themselves further. They're the great stability of a uh, constitutional society. And yet today, by as we're going to see by most metrics, the American middle class is eroding and getting weaker and weaker. And finally, there are these challenges on the other end historically to citizenship. And we see them at the palace at Versailles. We see them at the Escaral in this, during the Spanish Empire. We see them in the Kremlin uh, during the czarist efforts at constitutional monarchy at the end, and that is the unelected. The more that you have a constitutional society, the more responsibilities you feel you owe your citizens, not just the right to vote and to make their laws, but to ensure they're healthy and to ensure they're safe and to ensure they're happy. And when you take on that burden, you have to hire people and pay them with public funds. And we get this word from the French idea of the, the 18th and 19th century of a bureaucracy. And today in America, we have about 2 million people who are not elected, who work for the federal government, and they can act as judge, jury, and executioner of the regulations. And we make more regulations every year by people who are not elected than our elected representatives at the state, local, and federal level. There's also something I would call the evolutionaries. These are people who start examining the original constitution and they always feel that it is not fair or it's not as egalitarian and it should be expanded and expanded and expanded to the point where it 
is its amounts or its equivalent to nothing but chaos, anarchy. We can see that process today. We started out with the idea there were property qualifications at the state level in some states, or that the senators were elected by the legislatures and not the people. We've gone beyond that now. We have two senators per state with a direct election. But now look what's happening. As I speak, there are efforts to enlarge the court, Supreme Court. We've had nine people in the Supreme Court for 150 years, and this applies to the Electoral College. We want to junk that. We want to let in two more states. We want to make a national voting law. So there are efforts to change the very stuff of the Constitution to make it more egalitarian. One of the great postmodern challenges to citizenship, and it was apparent from the very beginning with this word that the Greeks made up, cosmopolitan, a polites, a citizen of the cosmos. Socrates says, I am not a citizen of Athens, I am a citizen of the world. And the premise of that is, Everybody is human, and, all we ha and although we have cultural differences, the idea of citizenship and constitutional government could incorporate everybody in a world government or world citizenship. And today we're seeing globalization uh, be the primary religion of our elite. The problem, as we're going to see with globalization, is that once you start to incorporate people into a world government, and they're not fully citizens, and their countries are neither democratic or republican, then you give equal vote at the United Nations or the old League of Nations or the International Criminal Court between a citizen and a non-citizen, between a constitutional society and an autocracy. And citizenship doesn't just fail at the international level, it fails in America as well. And so citizenship, I think we should take away in conclusion, is a very fragile concept. It's rare in history. It's not common today. It has to be nourish, nourished. It has to be protected. And Americans have to invest in it and say to themselves all the time, for the rights that I am given by the state, I have responsibilities to protect the Constitution, to vote, and to make sure people understand the customs and traditions of the United States.